How are we doing, church? Doing good? Great. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Grab them. We're going to start out in Luke 8. We're going to do a bit of a miracle sandwich there. There's a miracle, and then there's a miracle in between the miracle. It's a miracle sandwich. And then we're going to, we're going to be all over the Bible. We're going to be in Numbers and Malachi and just all over the place. So I need you to get the Bible that is in front of you. I know some of you just like to worship God intently by staring at me like a statue. So don't do that today. Grab it. Get the Bible out. We're going to flip around a little bit. Uh, we also put some of it in your notes. We're going to put all of it on the screen, but still grab the Bible. And here we go. Um, we're, we're, we're in this series called Miracles, and, and before we get into the Bible study part, while you look up Luke chapter 8, I, I just want to remind you, you know we don't just sing haphazardly, right? We don't just sing these random songs just because we like them, and uh, although we appreciate all the requests uh, that you give us all week, we put no stock in that either, all right? What we do is, is we try to, uh, you know, this isn't like, you know, greatest hits, it's, it's uh, what we try to do is we try to line up the words with the songs to the message and what we're doing, so the songs that we did today should take us on a little bit of a journey, and so even if you're not going to sing them, or even if you worship the Lord this way, that's fine. At least it's not really fine, but we'll talk about that another time. You, you, you got to pay attention to what we're saying, because sometimes you'll learn as much theology by what we sing as what I say. And so you got to pay attention to this. So we started out with beautiful Jesus, because the point of all the miracles is not the power of Jesus, it's the person of Jesus. And then we went into that song, Get Up and Walk, and it's like the soundtrack of this whole series. And I don't know about you, but I hope you've learned more and more, like you're recognizing the miracles, right? We get to that part, and you're like, oh my gosh, I know that part now. That's good, because everything's better with a soundtrack. Like, your life would be better with a soundtrack, wouldn't it? Like, if you were walking out of here, and then the soundtrack changed, you would know if it's going to be good or bad, by the way, the music playing in your life, all right? And so we've got a soundtrack. And then the whole point is that we would be closer and closer and closer to Jesus. That's the point of the miracles, that we would be closer and closer and closer to Jesus. I'll illustrate it this way. Have you been to the Players' Championship yet? Have you been there? Have you been? You should. It's like the second coolest thing in our city, second to when Georgia comes to town. All right, other than that, coolest thing we got going on. You should go. It's great. All right, I love it. <clears throat> so we've been multiple days, and on Wednesday, I took my kids. And so they, they got off of the, the bus, and we grabbed them, and got them all dolled up in, in TPC-approved clothing, and then we head on out. And uh, we had good parking, thanks to, to one of my elders. And then, uh, so we're walking around the clubhouse, and, and we're going to go just see who's kind of left practicing. It's probably like 4 o'clock at that point. And Bubba Watson, he's down on the uh, driving range, just, you know, to the glory of God and in the name of the Bulldogs. He's just left-handed pink driver smashing them. I'm like, look, guys, that's one of our guys. There's Bubba. And then there's a bunch of guys on the putting green practicing. And I'm like most of you. I care this week. I care during the Masters. And then I watch football like Jesus. Okay, so I don't know. I don't know. So I'd probably know seven to 10 of them, all right? And I get confused between who some of them are anyway. All right, and so there we are. And I'm trying to tell JP mostly, Reagan's just happy to be outside and look pretty. And JP is very enamored with this whole pro golf thing. He's like, so people can make a living just playing golf. I'm like, a really good one, all right? And so we're walking by the putting green. I'm like, look, hey, buddy, there's Zach Johnson. And I don't know who that is or that is, but these are pro golfers. And so as we're walking down the hill, we're not paying attention very well. And out pops one of the pros, one of the PGA guys. And he sees us there, you know, my adorable little kid. And he stops and he pulls out a Sharpie and a ball and he signs it and he hands it to JP. And JP's like, oh, thanks. And then Reagan's like, where's mine? And so, so he does it again and signs her one and hands it to them. And they're like, oh, I mean, they're just, they, they, this is great. And so I say, hey, good luck tomorrow. And then, uh, and then the two volunteers in the blue shirts that are working the little, like the rope situation, they're like, oh my goodness, kids, how lucky are y'all? People usually wait in line for that. And that he just walked up to you and they're like, wow. And then we take a couple steps and they go, Dad, who was that? And I went, I don't know. I have no idea. 
And so, and, and so I try to read the signature, but if you've ever gotten a signature from a famous person, it's like they just do it with their foot, right? They're like, yep, there I am. That's me right there. Take that. And so there's like a G and maybe a four in it. And I'm not sure what it is. I put it on Facebook during the boring part of the sermon. If you want to look at my Facebook page and help me identify who we have, that would be great. Okay. And so I just don't know. I'm like, buddy, I don't know. All right. Now here's the, here's, here's the thing. Sometimes we can treat the miracles. Sometimes we can treat the miracles, um, sort of like going to the TPC. Like we're amazed by what they can do, but we don't know them and they don't know us. I mean, we watch them hit the ball 300 yards and we can't do that. We're like, wow, but you don't know them and they don't know you. And what I want to be careful of is in this miracle series, we don't do that. We don't fall into that same kind of trap, you know, that we just are enamored with the things that God does, but we don't know him. You see, the point of the miracles is to draw us closer to him. And, and we can even do that in a growing church where God is moving every single week like this. That we can show up as like a spectator to the movement of God and not actually know the person of Jesus Christ. Did you know last weekend, and just a regular weekend in the spring for us here at 1122, 74 people surrendered their life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, that is amazing. Incredible. And, the, and it would be a shame. It would be a shame if everybody just sat back in awe of what God was doing, but you didn't get to know him because he wants to know you as Heavenly Father. And to those 74 of you that surrendered your life to Christ, or to the 466 that have surrendered to Jesus uh, since, since this new year started, or to the thousands that have surrendered to Christ and you've never been dunked or baptized, do you know what we need you to do and want you to do right after this service? You can go uh, and go to a baptism class so that on June 5th, you can declare, it's kind of like Elf, all right? You're like, I know him. That's what baptism is, sort of, all right? That's what it is. And that you would, in front of everybody, the whole family goes down together, and we celebrate not just what God is doing, but we celebrate who he is. And in Luke chapter 8, what we're going to find here is what it looks like not to just be mesmerized by his miracles, but to actually get to know him. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, it says, Now, when Jesus returned... And where he returned from, as you remember a couple of weeks ago, he went over and he cast a legion of demons out into the pigs. That's where he came from. So we had been in Luke 8 before, and now we're back. So when he returned, he's going to go back where he's been hanging out. The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Now, this is a big deal. This title is a really, really big deal. And falling at Jesus' feet, Jairus implored Jesus to come to his house, verse 42, for, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, what would you do? What would you do if you found yourself in this kind of situation? You see, here's the deal here. Jarius is at a place of utter desperation. Jarius is at a place of utter desperation. Every parent in here has, ha has had this thought, okay? They've had this thought, oh no, what if something happened to my kid? And if you've ever lived through it, it is your greatest nightmare ever. And you know what Jarius does at this point? He finds himself at this place of utter desperation. And he says, I, I don't care. I'll do whatever it takes to try to help my child. I mean, you can strip away my title. I'll bow, bow down to a local rabbi, even though I'm supposed to be the one in charge. It does not matter. I will do whatever it takes because I am in this place of utter desperation. Now, here's the part that's going to mess up your little southern evangelical mindset that we all have. What if, and by what if, I mean this is absolutely the way it goes. 
What if God actually ordains this kind of mess in Jairus' life and even in your own life? What if he actually ordains those messes? What if God is actually in control of this kind of mess? And the reason why is to bring you to a place of utter desperation so that when the world around you begins to fall, that you'll actually fall on your face before Jesus and that it's actually worth it. You see, this is called the sovereignty of God, that he's in charge of all things, that nothing is over his head, nothing is out of his control. He's never been surprised once. He's never, it's not like he was busy in Israel and he's like, what happened in Jacksonville? Oh no, why didn't Holy Spirit? I thought you were on this. I was in Israel. That is not how it works. That he knows every detail of everything that you're ever gonna do or is gonna happen to you, even if it's self-inflicted wounds. And here's why that's good news. Here's why that's good news. Because if he's not in control and you find yourself in a mess, you're pretty much hopeless. But if he is sovereign, his own sovereignty is the reason and the source of your hope. Because if he is in control and all powerful, then and only then can he work in every situation for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And just because that doesn't feel good right now does not mean that it is not true. Because I'm telling you, Jerry is saying, look, I'd rather have any other life than this right now. I would do anything for the sake of my child. But when you get to that place where you understand that he's still got the whole world in his hands and that he's a good dad, and even though, even though, your, life may not, even though your life may look like a mess right now, it might just be positioned for a miracle. And the miracle may not even come on this side of heaven. You see, as a pastor, one of the things that I get to do, and it, it really is a great privilege, is <clears throat> I get to sometimes sit with people in their dying days and in their dying hours. I got to know a man named Bob over the past few years. And, and sitting at his deathbed a few months ago, a couple of months ago, he told me this. He said, listen, it wasn't until I got the prognosis of cancer that my life was changed. And he says, in a weird way, I've got to thank God for cancer because I didn't need faith before I had cancer because I felt like I had my whole, work, my whole life worked out. And it wasn't until God rattled me by me getting cancer that I surrendered my life to the Lordship of Christ. And then here's what he said. He said, I'd rather have cancer and Jesus than be healthy and not have Jesus. Now, you see, now that's hope. And so I was with him a, a while ago when he when he went to be with the Lord, where he went to be with the Lord and we're surrounded, we're in the hospital room and his whole family is there. And listen, if you ever get sick like that and I come to see you, do not expect me to say something awesome. I'm not gonna say something awesome. I'm not gonna pray. I mean, I'll pray. I'm not gonna do a sermon though. And, and, and if you have an opportunity to sit with people, Christians, don't say anything because you'll just screw it up and say some stupid stuff, okay? And so that's, it's just true. You'll say some of the dumbest stuff and you'll mean so well. And be like, everything happens for a reason. I'm like, shut up, just stand there, okay? It's just the, the ministry of the presence, you know? You just say, I love you. That's it, I love you. That's what you just say. So there I am with her whole family and I look at this situation going on here. And there's, there is multiple generations and multiple family members from all these different states. And now, because of what God has done, every single one of them are following Jesus. They're walking deeply with Jesus. And one of the sisters says, this she goes in a weird way we have to thank God for cancer because without this none of us would know Jesus and then she says and now because we know Jesus not even death and cancer can separate us you see people that have been through that kind of desperation heaven is not just a theology for them it is a reality that they are looking forward to 
You see, so Jairus, here he is. He knows that Jesus can do something about it, and he's believing that Jesus is in control of all things. And so it says, in the second half of 42, it says, and as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So we'll see here in a little while, Jesus changed his mind, Jesus changed the direction. Jairus comes up and says, please, please, I implore you, please. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm gonna go to Jairus' house. And so as Jesus went, people pressed around him, 43, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. The, the King James says an issue of bleeding. This doesn't mean she cut her finger, okay? She's bleeding for 12 years. And it's not just a physical bummer. It is also, um, it's a religious and a relational nightmare. And, and here's the problem here. You see, this woman, it doesn't even mention her name. This woman, this issue in her life has gotten so big that it has defined her life. And so the reason it's, it's, it's such a death sentence in the first century is this. First of all, she's been dealing with this thing for 12 years. I mean, it's not like she's dealing with it for 12 days and be like, oh, and I can get through it, or even 12 months. I mean, you deal something with something for a year, but can you imagine just dealing with the same thing year after year after year? I mean, in the new year, I typically pray, Lord, I know that I'm gonna have to deal with some stuff, but just don't let it be the same stuff I dealt with last year, okay? I'm done with that stuff. Can I just get on to some new stuff here? And so for 12 years, here's the problem, that she has been, she has been um, labeled by the religious right here. She has been labeled as unclean. Leviticus chapter 15, you just want a little fun Sunday afternoon Bible reading. Why don't you read some Leviticus 15? You know how it's titled? It's titled, um, <laughs> it's titled, I can't tell you what it's titled. You're gonna look it up yourself, okay? Bodily discharges. There's a chapter in the Bible on bodily discharges, all right? All the teenagers just went right to it. They're like, what? All right, you should read your Bibles. Okay, so, and the point is this. There are, there are bodily discharges that make you unclean. And I think the reason, and they're in and around uh, pregnancy and, and menstrual cycles and all of that sort of stuff. And the reason, I believe, is it's always a pointing to that anytime a baby comes into the world, here comes another mess. Now, I know they're cute and they're adorable and fearfully and wonderfully made little wretched black-hearted sinners. That's what we get every time, okay? It's just true. Now, here's, here's, here's the real problem. So she has been ceremonially unclean for 12 years, which means she could never worship with her faith family. She was never allowed into the temple. She has to live a life of isolation. Also, if she touches anybody, then that other person is also unclean. And then here's what I think the worst of the worst of the worst, even worse than the label and worse than the isolation, I think is this. You see, deep in the heart of every woman, now I've obviously never been a woman, but I've got two at my house, I study them very closely, okay? <laughs> deep in the heart of every woman is the image of God. The Bible says in Genesis that God created mankind, that God created us in his image, male and female, he created them. And so here's a newsflash to, to our day and age. Men and women, different, not the same. Write that down, send it to a congressman, okay? We are different. And women, yeah, amen, amen. All right, and so the way, the way men image God and the way women image God are different. And God, according to John chapter four, God's not a man, God's not a male. He is father, but he's not a male or man. And so <clears throat> the way that he is spirit, and so the, the way a woman images God or is created in the image of God is this, is that deep in the core of every woman is this. She wants to be loved, she wants to be valued, she wants to be pursued. Can you see how that is an image bearer of God? Like think about God in worship. He wants to be loved, he wants to be valued, he wants to be pursued. 
And maybe the worst thing that you could tell a woman is this. You're defiled. You're dirty. You are unlovable. And so for 12 years, this is what she has heard. And it, it's not just a medical issue. I mean, this is a heart and soul issue. She is, she is bankrupt. By the way, a man is created in the image of God also. A man is created to image the character and the nature of God. And the core of every man is this. The core of every man is this fundamental question. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? And that's what every single one of us are, are trying to prove, all right? Every dude in here, none of us have graduated emotionally from about the eighth grade, and we're still trying to prove that we have what it takes. It's because God put it in there. And what we are trying to ultimately prove is this, do I have what it takes to provide and protect for the people that God puts under my care? And so if you go to Jarius, where is he? Even though it's no fault of his own, he's feeling, he's feeling absolutely helpless. And if the worst thing that you could say to a woman is you're defiled, maybe the worst thing you could say to a man is you're helpless. You can't take care of those that, that were given to you to take care of. And so what you see here is that Jarius and the woman with the issue of bleeding, they're actually at the same place in their life. They're at the, they're at the bottom of anything they wanted to live out. And you just have a male and a female version. And so here's this woman with the issue of bleeding, or had a discharge of bleeding for 12 years. And though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. You see, so for 12 years, she has some resources, but this issue is draining her of all of her resources, and she's trying to look in every place where she can to find healing, but she just can't find it until she looks to Jesus. Let me say two things here. Oh, often, more often than you know, actually, you're going to see it illustrated like crazy in this service. More often than you know that God uses physicians and medicine and doctors and technology to be the instrument of healing, but all healing comes from him. So we're not anti-physician here. We're, we're more pro-physician than you know that, that all day, every day, people cry out, dear God, please heal me. And he says, I hear that prayer. And in walks your doctor or nurse or whoever, okay? And the other thing that's just crazy this is the grace of God, is that sometimes even when we wait until we are out of all of our options and then turns to Jesus, he'll still take us. Isn't that good? That he will still take us. In fact, maybe sometimes he strips us of all of our other options so that we will know that all healing and all hope are found in him. And so she spent all of her living on physicians. She couldn't be helped by anyone, verse 44. And she came up behind him and she touched the fringe of his garment. Underline that in your Bible. It's gonna be really, really important. She touches the fringe of his garment. She doesn't tap it on the shoulder and be like, hey, can I get an appointment with you or something? I've really got this issue that I need to talk with about. She just gets to the fringe of his garment and then it says, and immediately, immediately her discharge of blood has ceased, which is also good news. It took her 12 years to get into this mess and immediately he gets her out of it. Verse 45, and Jesus says, who was it that touched me? Which is kind of a weird question, right? When everybody denied it, Peter said, um, and, and see, I think Peter doesn't want to answer because Peter's like, is this a trick question? Because I feel like you know, because sometimes I just think stuff and you tell me what I'm thinking. And now there's all these people around you. And I don't, if I bring it up, if I answer wrong, you might call me the devil again. I don't know if I want to answer this out loud or not. Okay. Uh, and so he's like, a lot of people, uh, master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. So Jesus, how do, you, how do you not know? And then Jesus has a follow-up question. But Jesus asked, or Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Like, do what? So you mean you just accidentally healed somebody? That's what happened? 
Like you're walking through town, there's a whole lot of people, and then somebody found the heel button, and they're like, eh, got me. You're like, whoa, what happened? All right, who did that? Who touched me? Who was it? And Peter and everybody, I think they're confused. They're like, what is going on? We're so confused again, 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. You see, this woman, I think she's like, oh, no, I am so busted. I mean, I thought I could just, I could just like get through the crowd. And, and by the way, every person she touched on the way to Jesus is now unclean. So, you know, see, I'm all arrogant and, and I would be terrible. I would just, if I was unclean, I'd be like, unclean, unclean, unclean. I'd be a greeter at church. All right, I'd be just, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? And I'd be like, everybody's unclean. <laughs> all right, now you can come to my house. That's what I would do. But she's probably like, oh, but it's worth it. I'm going to fight through the crowd to get to the fringe of his garment. And then he's like, all right, who did that? Who touched me? She probably thought she'd gotten away with it. And here's why. This is beautiful news, especially if you're kind of new to this whole Christianity thing. And you've been thinking about being a follower of Jesus, but you're just not sure. This woman is a great illustration that you can fully believe without fully understanding. She fully believes that Jesus is who he says he is and he always keeps his promises. But she doesn't fully understand the character and nature of God. You see, here's what she thinks. She thinks she's in trouble. And here's why I think that, because I think she's like, "Uh uh-oh, I just made the rabbi unclean. I know I'm in trouble. There are some of you, and that's the same attitude that you come to 1122 with. Like, you want help, you, you, you have a desire, you have need, you find yourself in a desperate situation, and then you come in here, and I hear it. You say stuff like this, oh, I was kind of scared to come in here. I felt like I get struck by lightning. Listen, if God wants to strike you with lightning, he does not have to wait till you come to a Walmart or a sports bar. He could just strike you at home, okay? That is, and that is not how it works. Some of you think that God's out to get you. Well, he is, but not the way you think. He wants to get you to be an adopted son or daughter into his family. That's what he's trying to get. That he poured out his full wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That anybody that would trust Jesus, that when God looks at you, he would look at you as if you lived the perfect righteous life of his son. And so there's there's no need for you to come in here afraid of God with that kind of fear and trembling. See, because if anybody dies for you, check this out, they are for you. And so no matter what you've done, no matter if you think you're going to be in trouble or not, welcome, welcome, welcome. Look what she does when she comes eyeball to eyeball with Jesus. She's trembling. She's afraid. She's trying to explain herself. Verse 48. And then Jesus says to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. That is not what she was expecting. She comes eyeball to eyeball with Jesus, and he says, daughter. Now, this is a little bit of a repeat from last week, but here's what this means. This world does not get to tell you who you are. And you have a father of lies in this world, whispers crap into your ear over and over and over to try to get you to buy into some label that this world says you are. This means you are not your past. You are not your sin. You are not your mistakes. You are not your addictions. You are not your emotions. You are none of those things. You are not, you are not your marital status. You are not, you are not your orientation. You are not those things that this world says, here's your issue and here's what defines you now. See, the world told her she's defiled. And Jesus said, no, 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 you're not defiled. You're my daughter. He gets to tell us who we are. 
and every single one of us that would surrender our life to the Lordship of Christ, then you and I, first and foremost, we are sons and daughters of God, and we have been made righteous because Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, a payment that satisfies, which means this, that God is not dissatisfied in you, not if you're in Christ. So he looks at her and he says, daughter. I mean, let's just be honest. Girls, look at me, every girl in here. Any of you got daddy issues? Oh, yeah, all of you? Okay, well, listen, Jesus looks at you, and he calls you daughter. Daughter, he gets to tell you who you are. And then he says this, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Not your activity, but your faith has made you well. Well, how did her faith make her well? You see, here's what I think is going on here. I think when, when Jesus says, who touched me? He understands that there is somebody here that believes that the, that the word of God is true, that the promises of God is true, and that God always keeps his promises. So flip back in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15, we gotta go fast. Numbers 15, all right, it's way towards the beginning of the Bible. And if you've got an electronic Bible, scroll there, okay? It took us 1,500 years, but we're back to scrolling in the Bible. Let's do it, okay? Numbers chapter 15 says this. It says, the Lord says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. This is why I like to just read it straight from the text, and I want you to look at it too. I don't want you to think I'm just saying whore for the heck of it, even though I am gonna read it two more times just for the Southern Baptist so you'll be uncomfortable, okay? So, and my wife hates it when I use this kind of language. I'm like, baby, it's just Bible verses, all right? So not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Verse 40, so you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now, very important. Here's what it does not say. It doesn't say, if you obey the commandments, then I'll be your God. It is not that activity leads to identity. It's the other way around. He says, I am your God. You are my people. And because I am your God, here are the commandments that you are to follow, that identity influences our activity, not the other way around. And so, and here's the thing too. In English, the word that we translate command, that is the right translation. It means command. There's some thou shalts and thou shalt, and shalt nots, for sure. But the way we hear it as Americans is way different than, than the, uh, ancient Israel would hear it. You see, when they heard command, they would hear it more like instruction. Like, wow, how blessed are we that we have a heavenly father that our God gives us the instructions on how to do life. That's different than like the law. That's why David will say things like, I meditate on the law day and night. Wow, how blessed are we that we would have these commandments of God, that he would instruct us on what to do and how to avoid pain and, and, and how to live. And so, um, if you ever go to Israel with me, which you should, this is what he's talking about. This is called a prayer shawl. And if you go to Israel, you'll see him like crazy. And, you, and, and it's, it's just, this is what Noah, I mean, what Moses was talking about here in Numbers 15. You see, God is a God of props. God is a tactile God. For people like me who don't read well, we gotta have pictures, right? And so this is it. And so this is, this is what he's talking about right here in Numbers 15. He says, on the edge of your garment, right here, the edge of your garments. And by the way, the edge of the garment is called a kanaf. Say kanaf. All right, now on the edge of your garment, you're gonna tie these tassels and, and the Hebrew word for tassel is tzitzi. 
It's T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. If you're from Dylan, that's T-Z-Z-Z-Z, but that's not how you say it, okay? And then there's five knots tied in the tzitzit, and the reason that there's five knots is because there's five books of the law, and you would, when you would pray, you would kind of wrap these around your fingers, you'd sort of play with the knots, and that you would memorize scripture this way. And so Moses says, hey, put these on your garments. And again, if you go to Israel with me, you'll see these. Sometimes th- these days, people have on regular clothes. Or you can go to New York, and you can just see these like hanging out of, out of people's shirts. These are Orthodox Jewish people that are trying to memorize the Torah and be reminded of it. And so this is what it was talking about in, in Numbers chapter 15. By the way... Um, this word for kanaf over time, not necessarily overnight, it began to be referred to as a wing, as a wing. And so, just to put it back in the New Testament, when Jesus is teaching on prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, some of you are familiar with this, he says, listen, so when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand on the street corner and pray out loud for everybody to see, and what they have done in public, they have received their reward in public. And the reward is, everybody thinks I'm an awesome prayer. He says, but when you pray, you go into your prayer closet. Now, that's not the war room, although it's a great movie. You should go see it. I'm fine with that. But the, what it is is when you go into the temple and pray, there's a whole bunch of people there, and you're not praying to these other people to try to impress them with your big theological words. But when you pray, then you go into your prayer closet. So you would go in, and you put your hands over your face, and that's your prayer closet. This is it. It's not the, it's not the room under your stairs where you've got, like, the old skates and stuff, okay? It is... This is your prayer closet. And you go into your prayer closet and pray. And what you have done in secret, your father will hear and he will reward. Why? Because this is a personal relationship between you and God. That's what the the prayer closet is. And so these religious people, every religious person, every Orthodox Jew in the first century, and even today would have one of these. And and you could see how they kind of got to be known as wings, right? They kind of look like that. And maybe that's why Jesus says on the day of the triumphal entry, as he's coming down the Mount of Olives, and he looks into Jerusalem, and he says this in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? He's like, look, I'm like a good dad. I'd like to just gather you all up right here where I could protect you. And some of you are like, okay, so what does this have to do with the woman? Well, here's what it has to do. If you'll go to the very last book of the Old Testament, it's Malachi. Malachi. To you Italians, it's not Malachi, okay? It's Malachi. And if you can't find it and you find like Micah, just hang out there. It's probably close enough, all right? So sometimes you ever fake it, but I think I'm going to stay here. Okay, so Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And this is, this is prophecy about the one who is to come. And here's what Malachi chapter 4, beginning of verse 2 says. It says, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its kanafs. And kanaf can either be translated wings or the edge of a garment. For you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall come with healing in his wings. And he goes on to say, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and the rules that I have commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And remember, it's actually the kanaf, it's the prayer shawl that's supposed to help us remember those laws. Verse 5, and behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then if you turn your page in your Bible, there's a blank page. And that's 400 years of silence. And then the next thing that happens, if you go to Luke chapter one, 
the Gospels, it starts out this way. In chapter 1, verse 16, it says, And he, this is John the Baptist, the first cousin of Jesus. And again, he's called John the Baptist because he was baptizing people. It's not, that was not his denomination. It's not like there's, there's Pete the Presbyterian and Mark the Methodist and John the Baptist. That's not how it works, okay? He, he was a baptizer. He was a, a dipper, dunker, washer of people. It says, and John the Baptist will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So what if this woman had some idea that John the Baptist had showed up? just like Malachi said. And that when Jesus showed up to John the Baptist and everybody said, hey, JB, are you the guy? Are you the one we're looking for? And he goes, no, 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 no. Behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the whole world. He must increase and I must decrease. And this woman thought that Jesus is the son of righteousness, that he is who God says he is and that God always keeps his promises. So if she can just fight her way, through the crowd and through the doubt and through the insecurity. She doesn't even have to have a meeting with him. If she can just get to the edge of his wing, to the edge of his garment, to the knoth, if Malachi was telling the truth by God, then the son of righteousness has healing in his wings. And so Jesus says, who touched me? There's somebody here that actually believes that I am who I say I am and that I always keep my promises. And so that when he looks at her, he says, daughter, your fate's. Your faith has made you well. And then the last part of his promise is what we're all looking for. And then he says, so go. Go in peace. Go in peace. Isn't that what all of us are looking for? Now, we look, at, we look for it all over the world, right, and stuff and pleasure and titles and all of that. But the reality is it can only be found in the author of life. And so he says to her, go in. The word he would use is shalom. Shalom doesn't, like that kind of peace doesn't just mean an absence of war. It means like the song we sang and get up and walk, only you can make me holy and whole. That's what shalom is. You can make me right with God and that you can give me a peace that transcends understanding. That's what we're all looking for. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened. Which if you're honest, and I know this is church, Sunday morning, no place for honesty, but if you're honest, that's all of us. Heavy burdened stressed out. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. And that's what this woman finds in him. And then keeps going. Verse 49. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came to him and said, your daughter's dead. Worst messenger of all time. Okay. You want to like start out with a lighthearted talk or something. It says, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Verse 50. But Jesus this is our whole miracle series, but Jesus. You see, the author of life gets to determine who's dead and who's alive. And so these other people do not get to tell her if she's dead or not. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Again, it's another review. Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. And so he goes on to verse 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And we've discussed a few weeks ago why this is. Some people think Peter, James, and John are his favorite. I think they're the three that can't be trusted alone, okay? So I think he's like, listen, y'all wait outside. I got some work to do in the house. Peter, James, John, get in the house. I think that's what it's like. Verse 52, and all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, don't weep, for she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Look at verse 53. And they laughed. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. 
You see, here's the reality. Have you ever just known something was dead in your life, like a hope or an opportunity or a relationship or a dream, and you just declared it was dead? And I think Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't get to declare that, only I get to declare that. And let me tell you what's gonna happen in your life. If you actually have the audacity, the gumption to walk by faith and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's always keeping his promises, that there will be some things by faith that you walk into and the world around you is gonna laugh at you. Here's why, they mock what they don't understand. And if they do not know the one that came up out of the grave, then they have no idea that the resurrected one can still resurrect stuff. He can still resurrect relationships and hopes and dreams and forgiveness. And you let the world mock me. I don't care. Jimmy Crash Corn, I don't care. That should be in the Proverbs. And here's why. Because I'm not doing this for the applause of man, but for the applause of God. And the whole world, the whole world can declare that what you're doing is laughable and mockable and has no potential. But I don't care. As long as the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And I don't want to live a normal American life. That is broke and alone and depressed. You can have all of that. I'm going to live crazy for Jesus and let him tell me who I am. Amen? How about you? That's what he says to do. So he's like, let him laugh. And then he takes the girl by the hand and he says, child arise. Verse 55, and her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Apparently dying and resurrected make you hungry. You gotta get something to eat after that. Verse 56. And her parents were amazed. Her parents were amazed. That word in Greek is real close to the word worship. They look at that and they're like, oh, he's amazing. His grace is amazing. What he does is amazing. They're so moved by who he is and what he does. You see, here's the thing. The miracles always point to the mission. What you'll see is Jesus never just does a miracle for the heck of it. It always is pointing to the mission. What if every time Jesus is doing a miracle, he's not flexing, he's foreshadowing. What he's saying is, um, when I reign in full power, you see, one day when he makes all things new, when we go to heaven, when he establishes a new heaven and a new earth, not only have we been saved from the penalty of sin and we're being saved from the power of sin, but one day we'll also be saved from the very presence of sin. And what Jesus is saying is when every time I'm doing a miracle, what I'm allowing you to do by my grace is I'm just peeling back the curtain so you can see what it's gonna be like when I'm fully in charge of everything. You see, it, in other words, you never see Jesus just doing random miracles. Like, oh, you don't believe? See that, see that palm tree? Poof, and he sends it like a rocket, you know? You never see that. You, you can't find the place in scripture where they walk up on, and Jesus was juggling camels. Hey, what are you doing, guys? Uh, yeah, sorry about that. He never does that. The, every miracle points to the mission. He goes, oh, y'all don't have enough food? Well, here, take this little bit of fish, a little bit of bread. Let's just pass it out. You see, in my kingdom, nobody gets hungry. Oh, you can't walk? See, in my kingdom, nobody walks with a swagger or a limp. Get up and walk. Oh, you can't see? Go wash your, wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam, because in my kingdom, everybody can see. Oh, y'all said she was dead? No, no, no. There's no death in my kingdom. Get up, little girl. Get you something to eat. You see, in his kingdom, all will be made new. And he's not flexing. He's just foreshadowing. So here's the point. Here's what I want to ask you. It doesn't do me any good to just go on and on about who Jesus is if I don't ask you personally, how does that impact your life? Do you need a miracle? Do you need a miracle? Have you ever gotten to the place in your life where you were so desperate that if God doesn't move, there is no hope? And then what if, and again, I know this is a lot to handle on a Sunday before you go watch golf all the rest of the day, okay, as you should. Uh, what if God is actually in charge of the mess? 
What if it's actually God that orchestrates the mess that we found ourselves in, whether it happens to us, whether it's a self-inflicted wound, no matter what it is. What if God is actually in charge of every one of those messes and he's actually using it as a platform for the miracle and maybe the miracle isn't that he changes all your circumstances, but maybe the miracle is he changes you in those circumstances, which is the only eternal miracle. I mean, what if, that, what if that's how this thing is going down? And I know it's hard to swallow, but what if it's God that actually gives us the pain to lead us to the desperation so that we would fight through the crowd to get to him? My 20 plus years of ministry experience, I've seen very few adults come to Christ in the good times. It's typically when their whole world falls apart that they fall down before Jesus. And to the one, they would say, and it's worth it. And it's worth it. Try to illustrate it this way. Every illustration breaks down at some point, but just try to go with me here. Imagine you went to the post office and you bought a stamp. Stamps cost 47 cents now. And just imagine they charge you 50 cents. And you would be like, I am offended and outraged and how dare you, how dare you over, that's why you're in debt, okay? Because you can't keep up the right prices, all right? And so you went back to them and you say, you owe me three cents, you have done me wrong, you've overcharged me for a stamp. And in response to the overcharging of the stamp by three cents, the United States government, just pretend, they said, I'll tell you what, you don't have to pay taxes for the rest of your life. What would you do? You'd be like, don't worry about that stamp, y'all keep that, okay? Don't even worry about it, I'm good. And then what would happen? Every April 15th, for the rest of your life, you would actually be reminded of Stampgate 16, and you would think, that may have been the greatest thing I ever went through. Not because I wasn't ticked off about the stamp, but the reward of no taxes for the rest of my life so overshadows that one little event that I think it was worth it. Now, if you're going through immense pain, I'm not saying the pain is not incredibly real, I'm just saying compared to the everlasting glory that God has for anybody that would believe or trust in Jesus, it is gonna so far exceed whatever pain you have now that you would look back in your life and you would say, God, whatever it took to break me or bless me, whatever it took to draw me to you, it's worth it. Listen, we see it here at church a lot. We get a front row seat to that kind of thing a lot. Six years ago, some of my very closest friends, actually my very first friends I ever had in Jacksonville, um, they were in this place of desperation. Six years ago, we were in a small group together with a few other couples, and they were going to the hospital to have their third kid. And so one of the things in a small group, you all go and, you know, be a part of that whole thing. And the first kid, I, their first baby I ever held was their first one, which is a terrible experience, man. They just, like, put her on me. I was like, what? Why? I'm not ready. And then they gave me to her, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm cramping. Get her. Get her. So, you know what I mean? I, I wasn't good at it. But so we go for the third one, and, and there were complications, and it wasn't awesome. And we go to, I go to visit Selena in her room. And listen, uh, I, go to, I get, you know, as preachers, we go to the hospital a lot. And, and there's just a different look when it's not going super awesome. And I walked in to her room, and it did not look good. And so I called one of my friends who was her doctor who also delivered our two kids. And I called her up. And I was like, hey, what's going on here? What is, you got to shoot me straight. What's the real deal? And she said, the doctor says to me, this isn't, this isn't good. And she's trying to help me prepare to do my job as I'm praying for her to do hers. Does that make sense? Like, we're all on the same team here. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And we get to a point of desperation, desperation. And what do you do? You fight through the crowd to Jesus. And I thought it would be better for you to hear it from my friends than to hear it from me. So take about four minutes and watch this video of some of my friends in desperation. <laughs> 
I think I know that the greatest miracle that I've ever experienced happened the day my youngest child was born. And so we went into the situation as any other birth we've experienced before. And it quickly ended up not being the case. After she delivered Maya, our youngest, she started to bleed out a lot, which we were told would happen, but at the rate it was happening was kind of surprising. The doctor, Dr. Walsh, described it as, you know, turning on a faucet and leaving it on the entire time as they're trying to patch her up. And so if you can imagine just a constant faucet going and going, and they're constantly trying to pump in, pump in uh, blood to the point where there was no more to give her. I wake up in the ICU, um, not knowing I'm in the ICU, because I'm in like the, the ICU portion of the hospital where it's the very intensive care. Um, throughout the day, I'm told that I just had extensive bleeding everywhere. I went to a point where I was kind of hypothermic, where I couldn't get my body temperature back up. Um, I remember very little, but I remember heating blanket after heating blanket just coming on, and I, I probably had like five on at a time. And about every five minutes, a thermometer is stuck in my mouth, trying to get my body temperature just back to normal. And it was a struggle throughout the day. So we get into Thursday night, and I got a text saying that I think, I don't know if Pastor Stone was preaching that night or what, but I was I, a message that the, he opened up in prayer. But he's praying that night. She's going into surgery. She has to have the surgery. They, they see things in her stomach. They see things in there that and it looks like flowing of blood in her stomach. And so they got to they open her up and get it out. After the surgery, the doctor comes in here, and these are the words that I remember. It's like, Cliff, there was something in there. We open her up, and now there's nothing else. There's nothing in there. She's completely dry. So there was blood. When we took the x-ray, we open her up. Now there's no more blood. The reason why I feel that it's, I know that it's a miracle is the way the doctor responded to me. When I asked him what happened, the doctor says, I don't know. It's a miracle at this point from the mouth of the doctor. If there's no category for it, which I think is what a miracle is, it's something that is not of this world, Then, and for a doctor to forego science for a minute and actually use that as a medical term was, was very, very interesting right. to me. She's crying because she's happy, baby. She's such a good baby. I think that every day in medicine we see miracles, and some are more dramatic than others. Some are more take your breath away than others, and Selena was definitely a take your breath away miracle. I mean, we worked very hard to take care of her, myself, my partners. We had other physicians involved of different specialties to make sure we left no stone unturned. And there were lots of prayers going up from all of our team to, to ask God to help us have wisdom in taking care of her and to intervene and keep her safe. But we, we see miracles every day. She was just a very dramatic one because she was so sick. I think it's, it's, it's still hard to comprehend and to understand exactly what went on. I still don't fully understand it. You could tell it to me 50,000 times and I'll still never fully 
comprehend mentally what happened and the grace that was extended and the gratefulness of God's grace that he, you know, he gave me is just, it's completely overwhelming to somebody, you know, to even think that, why, you know, why me? I'm still working on that every day because I, I, to be ungrateful would just be stupid. Um, I mean, I thank God every day that I'm here on this earth that I get to spend one more day with my kids, that I get to see them grow up one more day. And I just thank Him for that one more day, every day. Amen. Hey, don't you love it, love it, love it when you come across doctors and nurses and medical professionals that understand their role as an agent of God's healing. And it is a good, it is a good and perfect gift that comes from above. You see, in that moment, honestly, I was preparing for the potential of a funeral. And little did I know that God was preparing us to witness a miracle. So, so have you ever found yourself in a desperate place, a place where you need a miracle? Here's what you do. You do what Jesus told the woman and the man to do. Do not fear, only believe, fight through the crowd, and you get in that prayer closet, you get to the edge of the hem of the garment, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray. David Platt says it this way, God often uses the sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph. And so, here's the thing we just gotta be honest about here at 1122, sometimes it doesn't always go Selena's way. I mean, sometimes you've got this issue, you've got this need, you're in this moment of desperation and you pray and you pray and you pray and God does not change your circumstances. But in fact, the miracle that he wants to do is change the circumstances, change you in your circumstances. And so what do you do, man? You come to Jesus with everything you're made of. Even if you don't fully understand what's going on, that you come and you trust and you believe that he is who he says he is, and he always keeps his promises. And according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is a great high priest that can and does empathize with us, and by his life, death, and resurrection, that Jesus tore the barrier from the people of God to God himself, that you and I, because he's our heavenly father, that we get to come in boldly to his throne room. Here's what this means, and here's what I think this woman and man illustrate. Because of what Christ did on the cross, If you are a a follower of Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, you do not have to have a mediator to pray on your behalf, that you get to go straight to him because he's your dad. He's your dad, and every good dad loves when their kids come running through the crowd to him. And what you might have to do is you might have to fight through the crowd of doubt and suspicion and disbelief and 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 the crowd of shame and religious rules and labels that people have put on you, and you just get to the feet of Jesus and lay down whatever that desperate moment is before him. And listen, I am pro-prayer. I will pray for you anywhere at any time, but my prayers are no better than yours. They're not. That, that if you're in Christ, the same spirit of God lives in you that lives in me. But I mean, I'll pray for you. I was at a banquet with JP this last week. He got a perfect score on the math part of his FSA. He's like, Dad, they're doing a banquet. I got invited. Can we go? I'm like, yeah, buddy, we sure can. Let's go. And he's like, Daddy, there'll be a lot of nerds there. I was like, I think you're a nerd. You got a perfect. I mean, come on. And so we get there. And he was right. And so we show up. And they call their names. and give them these awards. It's great. And then at the end of it, it turns into an elementary school dance, which was super awkward. 
And so JP got a cookie, said, Daddy, we're out. And I was like, I'm with you. And so we're heading to the door. And on the way out, this lady comes up to me. And I could tell as I'm walking across the, the way, I could tell that, that she, she gave me that, I think you're my pastor look. You know, they kind of walk up on me and they're like, oh, you know, you look bigger on the screen. Is that, I've never seen you in 3D. Is that you? That's kind of how it goes. And then she comes up, she's like, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I go to your church. I was like, no, 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 it's our church. If you're there, I'm there, we're there, it's our church. She says, will you pray for me? I'm in this situation. I'm like, yeah, sure thing. And JP's like, what are you doing? I'm like, listen, this is what I do, okay? And as long as there's Christians in schools, there will always be prayer in school. You can't keep us out. And so here we are. So I put my hands on the lady, and I pray for her like crazy. And then I say amen. And when I said amen, there's another lady. She's like, hey, pastor. I'm like, all right, well, what service do you go to? She's like, I go to Bay Meadows. How can I pray for you? All right, let's pray. And then I pray for her marriage, and we pray. And then I say amen. And, I say, and then there's another lady. And I'm like, all right. So so what service do you go to? She's like, I don't go to your church. I just thought I could get some prayer. All right, let's do it. All right, we'll pray. So no problem. But, but, but you don't have to have a mediator. Yeah, you should have people praying for you, but you don't have to have a mediator. You, by the blood of Christ, are invited to go boldly into the throne room of God. Boldly. At the end of the service, my kids do not have to wait in line for me. They get to cut to the front of the line. You're a child of the most high king. You get to roll up in the throne room of God and say, Dad, I, I need some help here. I'm in a desperate situation. And what do you do? What do you do when your circumstances may not be changing? The Bible talks about this in Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says this. Do not be anxious about anything. Can let you, how? How do you do that? <laughs> right? Anybody anxious here? Don't. See you next week. I mean, how does that work? How do you just like, ah, okay. It makes it worse, usually. It tells you, it says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise. And the peace of God, this is what Jesus gave this woman. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. Sometimes the miracle is not that he changes the circumstances, but he changes your heart in the circumstances, and he gives you a peace that transcends understanding. In 1871, there was a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a very wealthy man. He was a lawyer. He owned most of the real estate on the north side of Chicago. And then the great Chicago fire comes through and wipes the whole thing out, and he loses almost all of his money. He was also a huge supporter of Dwight L. Moody. D.L. Moody was the, the number one evangelist in the world at that time. In fact, in fact through D.L. Moody's ministry, a guy named Billy Sunday got saved. And out of Billy Sunday's ministry, a guy named Billy Graham got saved. Maybe you've heard of him. And so Horatio Spafford says, listen, we need to get out of town. We've got to rethink what we're doing. I know that D.L. Moody is traveling right now over in Europe. And so he puts his family on a boat and they were all going to go travel over for like a, a vacation kind of thing to be a part of that ministry. And at the last minute, Horatio Spafford is called back to some zoning meeting in Chicago in 1873. And so he sends his family, he says, I'll catch up. And in the middle of the night on their voyage from the United States of America across the Atlantic, they get sideswiped in the ocean by another vessel. The mom, his wife, is saved. They find her floating on this plank of wood, and they put her on a boat, and they take her to the other side, and when she gets there, she sends a wired telegram that starts this way, saved alone, what do I do? And so, Horatio Spafford, you want to talk about a desperate, helpless situation. 
this man that loves God, and not only did he lose financial stuff, but now that doesn't matter at all because he lost four daughters in this accident. And he gets on a ship, and he is heading to the other side to try to bring his wife home. And in the middle of the night, on his voyage over, the captain of the ship comes to him and wakes him up and says, Mr. Spafford, this is about the place where your four daughters met their demise. And his journals tell us that he went out to the deck of this ship and he wrote these words that churches have been singing for 200 years now. Horatio Spafford writes, when peace like a river attendeth my way and when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, that is a peace that transcends all understanding. That in this moment, God did not change his circumstances, but he teaches Horatio Spafford how to say when he had utterly lost everything, he taught him how to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And you've got to ask, you've got to know how in the world will the next verses tell us, my sin or the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole. is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. And for anybody that has lost somebody, I am telling you this, heaven is not a theological idea. It is a future reality. And then he ends it this way. And the Lord haste the day when my fate shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll and the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even then, it is well with my soul. You need a miracle? You had a point of desperation? And you fight through the crowd of doubt. You fight through the crowd of disbelief. You fight through the crowd of whatever labels you've been given. You fight through the, the crowd of hopelessness. And you get to the great physician. You get to the feet of Jesus. And the way you do that, he says, come. Come straight to me. You don't have to have a mediator. You get in your prayer closet and you pray. And the God who hears our prayers, the God who hears our prayers, can, can give us a peace that transcends understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious heavenly Father, God, we know that regardless of our current circumstances, God, that you love us and you demonstrated your love for us in this, but while we were yet still sinners, Christ, you died for us. And Jesus, if you died for us, that means you're for us. Now it's not about us, but you're for us. So God, I know there are some people in here and they are desperate and they are hurting. Lord, I pray, I pray that you would remind them that you have not given them a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And God, I, I thank you and I praise you for the invitation that the king gives his kids to come run boldly into his throne room of grace. And God, I pray that there will be bold prayers. And God, I do pray that you would change circumstances for your glory. And God, I pray that you would pray, you would change people in their circumstances for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond. We're going to join our voices together. We're going to sing the words that Horatio Spafford wrote 200 plus years ago. And if you need a miracle, you get down here to your prayer closet and you cry out and your father who sees what you do in secret will reward you. Let's respond.